to all the dads out there that are just in complete hell right now. I understand. I've been there. I went through two hells. The first one especially was hell, but there is a way out. I just have wonderful relationships with my kids because I've worked on myself. I worked on getting over the trauma of the whole thing. And then I also, I think this is extremely important. I saw my role in it. Welcome to Why Daddy Never Cries podcast with your host, Chuck Kelleher. At Why Daddy Never Cries, we'll explore the lives surrounding daddies, their children, divorce, and silent domestic violence. We'll hear real-life horror stories from unsung heroes fighting for the ability to stay in their children's lives. We'll get those voices heard and hopefully find solutions before you lunatics burn the whole place to the ground. Hang in there, daddies. Chuck's here. Chuck Kelleher and Why Daddy Never Cries are providing his podcast as a public service. I've known Chuck for 45 years, and he's neither a lawyer nor a mental health professional. He's not a doctor nor a rogue scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Chuck is simply a guy who's lived in hell for 20 years. Once he found a way out, he drew a map to help others navigate their own way home. The views and opinions expressed by Why Daddy Never Cries, employees, or our guests are their own. Guest appearance on the program do not imply an endorsement of them their opinions, or any entity they represent. And please, for the love of God, if you have any questions or fears about your unique circumstances, please contact a lawyer, a religious leader of your choice, or a medical professional in your area. Don't fuck this up, brothers, because we're all in this together. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foss G2, for helping small and medium-sized businesses elevate their brand perception with design. Take your brand to the next level at VossG2.com. We'd also like to thank Harry Duran, and his team at Fullcast for their amazing assistance. If you're planning a podcast and you haven't contacted Fullcast, you might as well call your show Podfade. All right, how's everyone doing today? I'm feeling good. I'm ready. I'm excited. Why? Today we're talking with Scott Hall, an Atlanta, Georgia musician who creates music to heal from the trauma caused from his past marriage. One thing that stands out from this interview is Scott's empathy for his ex-partner. Now don't worry if you're not as far along as Scott is on your journey to recover from false allegations or parental alienation or any other kinds of domestic violence you've fallen victim to. As you listen, just keep in mind that this is the direction we should all be trying to achieve. In a world where headlines scream for attention, we choose to listen to the whispers that hold the true revelations. All right, let's get into it. All right, Scott, welcome to the Why Daddy Never Cries show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where do you reside? Well, originally from New York, uh, but I spent most of my life in Atlanta from seven, the age of seven on. I've just recently moved to Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains, nice. and we're loving that. Very cool. And what brought you to North Carolina? Just the, the land and wanting to get away from the city. Yes. Atlanta's become a big city. It's not quite New York, but it's still a very big city. So mm-hmm. we're And we're empty nesters now. So Okay. Yeah, that's nice, man. Very cool. So, how'd you meet your your ex? We're talking about my first ex, right? I'm I'm divorced twice. Uh, so the first ex, I met her at a bar. Uh, she was a friend of my. She was my sister's best friend's sister. Sister's best friend's sister. Got it. Yeah, and uh, I was very young. I was 19 when I met her, and we got married at 20. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I call that my starter marriage, but I don't say that to my older kids. I love my, I'm so, ha- so happy to have the 
kids from the marriage, but yeah, yeah I was very young. How uh, how old are the kids from that marriage? They are about to be thirty three and thirty two, or or thirty no thirty three and thirty one. Yeah, as I have a twenty year old backpacking Europe now, I can definitely say stay away from getting married at a young age. Yes, yes. <laughs> my my oldest my oldest my daughter she's married and I am a grand, a proud grandfather. So awesome. And awesome. another one's on the way. So, are they in your area? They're in Atlanta, so it's only about uh, four hours away. So that's we we drive down there all the time. Yeah, to see oh, them. That's very cool. So you have a relationship with your older daughters, despite yeah, very close relationship. Her mother actually passed. Um, the the woman that we'll be talking about, she passed. Uh, she had drug addiction issues uh, and died fairly early. I mean, she's six sixty or sixty one or something when she died. And so I'm going down there to take care of her or to watch the baby while she's in the hospital having the, the new one. So I'll be the mom's role. Yeah. That's one thing you have to do sometimes is, as a dad, uh, as a single dad, to do a lot is, is try my best to do the mom's role. And that, that's what I'm going to go do. I can empathize. Oh, so she just recently passed? So, yeah. My granddaughter's two and she died right before my granddaughter was born. So just a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's some sadness to this story, for sure. Unfortunately, a lot of our stories yeah. have sadness. All right, so you met her, you guys fell in love, you were young. Yeah. When did you start feeling the relationship was going south, or did it hit you out of left field? I kind of got, when I got married, I knew something was wrong. When I got married, I wasn't following my instincts. My, I wasn't following my intuition. I didn't even know what that was back then. But I remember when we were getting married going, God, this is probably a bad idea. But I think I was kind of doing it to get back at my parents a little bit. That's how young I was. They did not like my fiance at all. Uh, they thought she was like a gold digger or whatever, because our family came from whatever, you know, so they they had their thoughts about it. And I had mine. But right away, I knew something was, you know, wasn't didn't feel 100%. But I thought it was going to go well. But she ended up getting in a cycle of getting sick. And then getting pain medication. And once she got hold of opioids, that was like all she wrote. Oh, God. But she came from a tough upbringing and she was abused and she had a condition called borderline personality disorder. That's very difficult to deal with. It's very difficult to have a relationship with someone like that because they're always afraid something bad's going to happen. And that's basically how I lived when I was with her. It's like something bad's going to happen at any moment. She was always thinking something was going to happen. So it was tumultuous at best. What were some examples? Like World War Three, or our plumbing is going to stop? Or both? Uh, well, if she was in pain, you know, it was like she was going to die and she had to go to a hospital to get help and she would cry and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And she had endometriosis. She had actual some actual ailments. But later on, she would get a pill book, an ailment book. I don't know what else to call it, a helmet book. She kind of put all that together and became a professional at getting sick and then getting the drugs she needed. So, yeah, it's it's actually, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad just talking about this. I haven't thought about this in a while. Oh, I'm sorry and happy. No, no I, no, I want to talk about it. I'm sure there's other guys out there who are with women that are like this and are like, what the hell's going on? You know, where, where am I? Where's the top of the water so I can breathe? Because that's what it's like. Yeah. I'm part of a falsely accused network out of the UK. And there's a couple of guys out there, same thing. Wife got addicted and then other things started happening in the marriage because of the addictions and, and it just falls apart. 
you try to keep the family going. You try to keep the family unit together as best you can because you understand there's an illness or a sickness and you love this person. Yeah. But eventually you have to let go. When did that crossroads come to you guys? Well, luckily I was seeing a, a therapist. What what happened was actually the way I met that therapist is we tried to find her a therapist and she went to a psychiatrist who was just out of school, just said, you're borderline personality disorder and blah, blah, and you're this and you're that. And of course, she just ran the other way. And then this guy in the same group who's a little older said, I'll talk to you. Let me talk to you. And he had, you know, like a great bedside manner. And she started talking to him person with this problem often runs away from the problem. They don't want anyone to look inside them. They don't want to see what's in there because it's bad trauma. Sure. And and so she said, I don't want to go. And I'm like, I want to go. So then I started seeing this guy. So luckily I was seeing him and talking to him. And I remember specifically, he said to me, you are going to be a better father if you're happy. And it, I don't see you being happy with this person because she's so ill. So for me, it was, that was very helpful, because I had a daughter that was two, or two and a half, a son who was one when I left, we were just getting along horribly. And she actually said, go stay with your grandfather. And I did. And then she's like, come back. And I tried that. And then then I said, you know what, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. This isn't working. I can't do this. I was about the same age my daughters were when my divorce was finalized. Yeah, that's tough. Because I remember I was living in an apartment with my sister, and my daughter came over with my son. But my son really was only one, so he wasn't talking much. But my daughter said to my sister, like, why? I don't understand why daddy left. I don't know, where's daddy? I want daddy. You know, it's like, it just broke my heart. Yes. I was just like, oh, God. I, you know, And I was so young, too. I was trying. I was 27. I was trying to find myself. I didn't even know who I was. So, and having your world ripped apart when you're literally trying to build it together. Yeah. So then, you uh, initiated the divorce. Uh, see, if I, so many years ago, I'm trying to think. I know she didn't want the divorce, so I assume I initialized it. Okay. I don't really recall that it, we ended up having a custody battle years later. But at first, I agreed that she would have custody of them, primary physical custody. Okay. We lived in the same area, so I got to see them a lot at the beginning. At some point, she left to go to Kentucky and didn't really give me a choice about it, and she just left with them. And that that was really hard. So for like five years, they were living in Kentucky, and I only saw them. I had to drive uh, with my wife at the time five and a half hours up and five and a half back to get them to visit. So that was tough. And at first she didn't even tell me where she was. I was meeting her at McDonald's. I've had rough times with that relationship was really, really rough. So you had to go pick her up, pick the girl, two, your two girls. Boy and a girl. Boy and a girl. You had to pick up your children five and a half hours and then drive back. I'm a two hour one way guy and you're a five yeah. hour guy. I won't complain. Yeah, it was not. Well, I couldn't do it much. I wasn't doing it every every weekend. It was just not, oh, yeah. not possible. Because you needed a long weekend to do that. Yeah. And then you had to recover from the drive getting yeah, back. Yeah, because if you go up on a Saturday, it takes up all Saturday, then you just would sleep and then go up on a Saturday. It wouldn't make any sense. So it only made sense when we had a block of time. Having remarried, I can imagine that did wonders for your relationship. 
having your now wife in the car driving to your ex-wife's house to pick up your yeah, kids. Yeah, she was a trooper. I mean, she, we ended up divorcing too, but she was a, a trooper about it. She really was. Yeah. Now that your wife left, obviously, without your permission, you went to pick up the kids one day and there was a note on the door? I think she told me she was moving, I believe. Yeah, I believe she told me, but she didn't say where, give me an address or anything because she was kind of running away, you know, right. she was running away from my guesses. She was running away from money problems and probably owed people money. Cause this is back when you could write people checks that bounced. Yeah. And she later got in trouble in Kentucky and was arrested for bouncing checks. Bouncing bad checks. Yeah. So I imagine that's what she was running from. So it was a little like, I'm out of here. And then, Oh, tell, tell the dad later. So it seems like you guys had a palatable relationship divorced, but in the same area. When did the allegations start or how did they start? Oh, that was, I'm trying to think of that was, it was before they left for Kentucky. You want me to talk about the incident or? Yeah, if okay, you're comfortable. So, yeah, I'm not, but that's okay. <laughs> Cause I, I think it's good that I'm not comfortable because I need to really, means I got more work to do about this, Empath I think. Um, empathize and understood. Yeah. So when we were still living close to each other, I came to pick them up from her apartment. They had suitcases. I grabbed the suitcases and we were in and we started arguing about something. I don't remember what it was. My part of the deal was I used the C word, which was very uncalled for. Shouldn't have done it. I just was so angry. Um, I used the C word and she got super angry and tried to stop me from leaving. I reached to the door and I had suitcases under my hand. I reached the door and got to the door first and I had my hand on the doorknob. She reached and grabbed the doorknob with two hands over my hand. I'm like, no, over my dead body, you're not letting me, you're not holding me here. And I'm taking these kids. I have right to take these kids. And so I twist the doorknob and, and jerk open the door and she's trying to stop it. She stumbles back a little bit. That's all that happened. You know, yelled more, yelled all the way to the car. So she walked to the car with me yelling. The poor kids are crying. I put the kids in the car. She starts making accusations like I hurt her or something. If I was in my right mind, I probably should have just let go of the doorknob or something. But later on, I'm, I was at work. I got a call from the police. And the story is that she's told the police. Now, they didn't tell me this. <laughs> they didn't tell me this until they arrested me. But the story was that I... I picked her up and threw her by the shoulders or just picked her up and threw her against a casing of a door. Right. And I was like, that did not happen. I told the police about the scuffle, whatever. And, you know, now I know better. If you're in a problem with the police, do not talk to them. Call a lawyer. It's just like that. That's just what you do. You, yeah. you may think that you look guilty. Don't worry about that part. Just call the lawyer. Let them worry about that part. But because um, I spoke too much, I probably should have not even said that. Turns out she hurt herself to get drugs. She had a cut in the back of her head that she must have given herself. Mm -hmm. She went and saw my family doctor, the doctor I grew up, the, my pediatrician, and had him verify that she had a cut on the back of her head. And I had a horrible lawyer. So the court said, basically found me guilty because there was this cut. And I said there was a scuffle and there's this cut. So they believed that something must have happened found me guilty but the good thing is that my doctor was there and he's an old dude and the the judge was an old dude so he's from one old dude to another he's like 
you've known him all your life. What's he like? He's like, not like this. He's, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, and the judge said, well, I have to find you guilty, but I'm going to, you're going to have no sentence. My sentence was nothing. I okay. think maybe I was on probation or something. So it was basically nothing. But it wasn't just nothing. I had to right. go through all the hiring a lawyer and all this stuff. And it, it was very traumatic. And my kids, and I've, I've been talking to my daughter and she said, I, we were talking about something. And I said, I said, yeah, I've been, you know, that jail that's on TV right now. I've been in that jail before in Atlanta. And she said, you were? I said, yeah. And she didn't know about it. And I said, one day we'll talk. And right. I'll tell you about it. So she, she doesn't, she, she probably will remember the story her mom told her. I'll, I'll bet if I bring it up, she'll be like, oh yeah, I remember. Oh, blah, that's, blah, when, blah. that's when you were running drugs for the cartel, right dad? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, apparently I was like, you know, super strength and could hold suitcases under my hand and press her against, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, that was, it was extremely traumatic. So walk us through the the custody battle. So they moved to Kentucky. They lived up there for a while. I found out where they were living, but I still never went to their house. She would only meet me at like a McDonald's. But I knew where they were living. I knew where they're going to school. And the principal called me out of the blue. Somehow, I think, I think I'd given him their, my number or something like that. I don't know. And he called me and said, I think you should come visit your kids, which is a big wake up call. Yeah. So I was like, oh, crap. So I went up there and visited just my daughter, actually, because I knew my son was if I saw my son, he went to school earlier then I wouldn't be able to see my daughter. And I really want to see my daughter because she could talk and could tell me more Mm -hmm. what's going on. I just had a look at her and she looked disheveled. She was she was six. She was making lunches for her son. For her, her brother, so yep. she's treating him like a son. For her brother, found out that circles under her eyes. She just looked like a ragamuffin, just not taken care of. Look, that visit must have scared her, and she decided to come back to Atlanta and marry the boyfriend she was seeing before she went to Kentucky. So they married, and then shortly thereafter, he got a promotion to go to Florida. And they said, we're going to Florida. And my lawyer then said, this is the time. He was a really good guy. He's like, if there's any time where you need to go for custody, this is the time. Because you know what happened in Kentucky. You're not going to see them again mm-hmm. if they go to Florida. Because for those who don't know the geography from Atlanta, Florida, South Florida is like New York. It's way farther than than Kentucky. So we started a custody battle in the county it was in, in Cobb County, Atlanta, was the longest running battle uh, for a while. It was a year and a half. But now I hear guys online, they're going like for five years and stuff. So, Crazy. but The kid's emancipated by the time they get custody. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we had this custody battle going. We're trying to prove she's a drug addict. And we're asking questions of the hospital in Atlanta. My lawyer gave something to their lawyer, said, hey, we want medical records for such and such person. And he was like, such and such person, that's an unusual name, because I have an arrest warrant here for that same name. They had given information to the police about this person who was coming to their emergency room, looked like they were self-harming to get opioids. And the person had stolen, the woman had stolen a prescription pad. pad, (laughs) And she had 18 counts of fraudulent prescriptions in two counties. And the lawyer didn't have to do this, the lawyer at the hospital, but he called my lawyer and he said, she's about to be arrested for this. So that was a glorious day because because we had an emergency hearing and I got custody of them immediately, had custody of them for seven years. They lived with me and my new wife. 
in Georgia at 14, they can decide who they live with. Right. And anyone who has teenagers knows that teenagers pretty much decide who they live with anyway. You can't go really much go against them. You can't pin down a teenager. So mm-hmm. um, it's not the worst law in the world. But anyway, my daughter got through it. But when my son hit 14, his mom had worked on him and he wanted to go to his mom, even though his mom was a full on drug addict. And I couldn't do anything. So I had two times where they left me. The worst one was after seven years living with me where I felt like I was protecting them from their mother. They got visitation with her, but it, it was it was hard. That was really hard. I can imagine, brother. Oh, man, I could see it in your face too. Yeah, that was hard. She's in Florida now or is she local? So they never went to Florida. Okay. We stopped that because of the custody battle. But they stayed in a place called Kennesaw. It's north of Atlanta and lived there until the kids left the house. But both my older kids had trouble with addiction my youngest i had with my second wife had trouble with addiction luckily all of them are recovered and doing well but it's it's hard to escape that when you have divorce and at least one parent who uses a lot of a lot of kids have two parents that are using their addicts but my relationship with them is great now the son and daughter i had the son he was like 15 years in drugs with maybe oh, a okay. three-year break. And so he's been sober now for a year, which is like a miracle because he was on heroin and meth for years. And it was just hard. We were just waiting for the phone call. All yeah. And we got phone calls. And I thought, is this the death phone call? Oh, no, it's the hospital phone call. Oh, no, it's the police phone call. So it's super tough. And it's no wonder coming from that woman who's, you know, number one, has a mental illness because of being abused and found drugs. I, I don't really blame her because the drugs numbed all that trauma yeah. that she wasn't willing to look into. And I can't say that if I was treated like she was as a kid, that I would be any different. I I can't say that I would be. Oh, I could say I'd be exactly the same. Yeah. I, I would been in a world of hurt if it wasn't for my father being as strong as he was, my mother being as strong as they were, moving us out of Brooklyn when they did. I mean, growing up in Yorktown was a blessing because you can get in trouble. You can get in a lot of trouble, but not as much. Yeah. Good. Good for you. Yeah. So you're, you're a musician, a professional yes. musician, yes. a professional musician. As I well, trip over I, my own time. Yes. It's not, it's not how I make all of my living, but I do make money from music. Just not much these days. So, yes. It's like, like myself someday hope that this is our permanent career. And- yes. That, that would be my dream, but um, I've always played and usually especially this day and age you don't make hardly any money off plays on spotify and it's like 0.04 cents per play or something if you can add that up and realize that a dollar is hard to come by from that but playing live you still make money so okay that's what i do yeah now you guys pay to play down there I've yet to get my first gig here because I just moved here. Right. I've been playing doing open mics and and meeting musicians and trying to get a, a band together and I'm about to record my first song here. But in Atlanta, it's no, it's not as bad as that. I played with my buddy and we did breweries and restaurants and that kind of thing where yeah, yeah. it's definite pay versus playing a club where you have to bring in a certain amount of the door. I've done both. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the door thing is great if you have tons of friends that are willing to go to every gig. But <laughs> Every Saturday, every Saturday, come out with us. Yeah, yeah. We'll do something different this weekend. Yeah, right. Your album, Alien, Angels, and Monsters. I was listening to it today. Really good. I like Monsters. That was about my son, Monsters. Now that I'm talking to you, I kind of got that. Yeah. He called me one night and he said, hey, I'm 
going to walk out in traffic. And I said, let me come get you. This is when his mom had passed or was about to pass. I guess she was about to, she hadn't passed yet, but she was sick and she wouldn't go get him. So I went and got him. And he was in the car with me and we had this conversation about nothing. That's what the song is about. Like a conversation about nothing when you're trying to kill yourself and you're on drugs. Like, why are we not going any deeper? Yeah. It's just, you know, hey, can we stop and get cigarettes? Hey, where's your house? Let me sleep. But luckily, I've had a little deeper conversations with him now that he's sober. So, in a year, God bless, man. Years, the first year is tough. Yeah. Yeah. He got through that. Yeah. Good for you. You have probably the quickest, easiest, and best ending false allegation story. Oh, yeah. That I've heard out of anybody. And it's really sad to say because, and we've all felt this way, and even the most inner peace person, there comes a time during a divorce where you just pray hellfire will rain down on this individual that you once loved, and you could be there to watch it. I can almost imagine all these guys cheering, listening to this episode when they found out she was getting arrested, as I would have. Luckily for your children, because had you not had them for those seven years, God only knows, maybe they wouldn't have recovered. Yeah, true, true. I know it was my visit up there and my trying to get involved up there that made the teacher call me. And then then my subsequent visit made her come down here. So I did make a difference by going up there. But she, when they were up there, they were living with their angry alcoholic grandmother, the one that abused mm-hmm. my ex-wife. The angry alcoholic sister was just like the grandmother, just like her mom. And their mother, who was a bouncing checks addict trying to get Percocets. And it could have gone really bad if I hadn't gotten custody of them. I remember, I mean, it was very contentious and I couldn't stand her. I really, I did hate her. I did. I, I, I don't hate her now, but I, I just hate her guts. And when we got into the elevator after the judge said, gave us custody, she was walking by and, and it was me and my current wife and my lawyer, and she just flipped us a bird. And I just love that too. I'm like, uh, making you feel it, glad, mm-hmm. happy. So I felt vindicated. Did being convicted of domestic violence ever affect you later? Because a lot of guys will plead out the domestic violence just so they can focus on the family court. But as we found out, that domestic violence plea ends up coming back and biting these guys in the ass when they go to get custody of their kid. I'm trying to remember. I My guess is I got lucky that she was so probably wasted during this whole time when we were trying to get custody that the thought didn't occur to her that, hey, I had him arrested on this and he was actually found guilty. Okay. So I don't think she thought to do that. And in fact, when my lawyer, my first lawyer, ended up using two different lawyers, but my first lawyer who wasn't that great, but she she told me, she said, just judging by your wife, you know, because I was still married at the time, she said, judging by your wife, don't be surprised if you if you get accused of sexually assaulting your kids. So I had that in the back of my mind the whole time. I was like, if anyone would do it, she would definitely do it. And she did say something like, I hurt my son at one point. She said, my, he got hurt when he was over there. And it was just total bullshit. But she, luckily, she didn't press it. Oh, I've had child services at the house three times on three different occasions, usually around when something nice was happening in my life. Oh, God. Of course. It's, it's a lot. It really is a lot. No, I love you. Your false allegation story is a home run, so it kind of threw me off. How did being accused of domestic violence make you feel? Obviously, it hit you out of left field. You didn't know until you I, got I down went, there. So I just tell anyone 
because my son got in some, my youngest son got in some trouble that wasn't his either. He got falsely accused and just hire a lawyer immediately and find the best lawyer and get references on that lawyer. So I didn't do that. And when the cops say, hey, will you come down and talk to us? Hire the lawyer. That's when you should hire the lawyer. And I didn't. I thought, I'm a nice guy. I mean, anyone, you ask anyone about me, that's one thing they're going to say. Oh, he's such a nice laid back guy. He would never do something like this. So I'm like, I'm, I didn't do. I, well, first of all, they didn't tell me what I was accused of. They said something happened. I'm like, oh, okay, so what is that? That Did I break the law by opening the door? You know, I was trying to think about that. Like, did a risk get hurt or something? Like, what, you know, what did, what are they accusing me? I didn't understand, but I'm going to straighten this out. And so when I went down there and the cops were so accusatory and just totally disbelieving. And when I said, yeah, something happened, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, all right, all right. We're just waiting here. And then he's like, yeah, we're just waiting. I'm like, well, what do you mean waiting? Waiting for your warrant to come over. I'm like, what? Like, yeah, you're under arrest. And they took me outside and put handcuffs on me and put me in a van. And when they put the handcuffs on me, that's when I felt horrible. Yeah. That's when I was like, I am just a piece of meat. I'm just a, a nobody. I'm just trash. That's what I felt. I'm just like, you know, because the person I am doesn't do these things. And, and someone's like thinking I did these things. And then the jail in Atlanta is horrible. Fulton County Jail is it's still one of the worst jails. And it was bad then. And I went into a, a holding cell with a bunch of guys who were deadbeat dads and hadn't paid child support. Oh. So they're the deadbeat dads. And I'm the one that looks like I beat my wife. So, And my sister had to come get me out. And it was just horrendous. It was the whole thing was horrendous. And I was in, you know, needless to say, embarrassed about it. And didn't really talk much about it. And I think I held my emotions in. Back then, I didn't have as much support as I do now. Back then, well, we were talking about 20 years ago, give or take? Yeah, 20, 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm about 18, I think. If I did the math, 16 and 20 somewhere. I don't know. It's a couple of years are just blurs. Yeah. Like getting arrested for that, especially. It's one thing if you're like drunk and fucking around with your friends or something, you know, and it's doing something that you know knucklehead like knucklehead stupid but but hurting a woman no yeah. my father told me it takes two to tango and he told me it over the phone and thank god because i would have grabbed him had, like dad this is me this is me how, how could you say this is, takes two to tango what my father didn't explain till later on was your reactions is the other part so she could bait you but it's how you're reacting and he meant that we yelled i come from a yelling household she came from a yelling household our house, there was a lot of yelling and nobody needs to live that way. And I'm glad I'm out of it just for the yelling aspect, but you got a Brooklyn personality with a loud volume. You can make a lot of accusations because the stuff we say yeah. is you know, taken out of context. It's vile. But as you and I were talking, you know, New York, you make, if you don't make fun of somebody, you don't like them. If you don't say something yeah. bad to somebody, you don't like them. Yeah. Yeah. And I come from a part, part Italian family. So, as you know, you <laughs> Yeah, you, it's hard to not say how you feel, even though I was raised to be like kind of more suburban, but I, inside I've got that Italian thing. And I, and I shouldn't have said those things. I shouldn't have said the C word. I really shouldn't. So if I was a rewind and say, okay, now as a 50-year-old man looking back, what should I not have done? I should not have challenged her at the door, probably try talking it out. 
I certainly should not have said the C word because that's why she was challenging me at the door, period. I could have just just not said anything. Now, would she have been vindictive in some other way for some other reason later on? Probably. But, you know, I, I know that those are my that's my role in that. I don't know if she understood the gravity of what she accused me of. Probably. I don't know. She was a lot more streetwise than I was. She was a little older and she'd like lived with her boyfriend in a car. And, you know, that's why my parents weren't too crazy about her. They they were like, she's a little rough and uh, they didn't like that. So she was way more streetwise than I was. I was just sheltered. School of hard knocks. (laughs) Yeah. School of hard knocks. Exactly. When you dig down, we really do. You see that, like you feel bad. Like I know my my ex, her mother had an abusive relationship, according to her, and the father's out of the picture. Uh, my understanding is the same thing happened to the grandfather from what little research I did. And you see the patterns of yeah, right. abuse. You see the patterns. And one thing I think I've been trying to tell a lot of people, my own children and everybody else who will listen, is you have to identify the good and the bad of your parents because chances are you have a little bit of that in you. And then the next generation needs to break that cycle. So if it's drinking, you got to break the cycle. And then you got to let your kids know, hey, by the way, we have alcoholism in our family. If it's anger issues, you got You have to break the cycle. You can't leave it up to your kids to break it. And then as they start developing their anger issues, because a lot of the stuff is handed down from generation to generation, you can now equip them with the tools they need to overcome their anger issues before they end up in a situation, not like ours, but like ours. Not saying we had anger issues, but- Anything that could be misconstrued, like using the C word. Yeah. Yeah. I just had a talk with my daughter about this. I said, well, her mother had two sisters. One died at 30s in the 30s, committed suicide. The one that was total angry alcoholic. And what I think she was abusing her son. And I think she just couldn't live with herself. So she killed herself. And then the mom died, like I said, two years ago from opioid problems she had a heart attack a massive heart attack opioids are hard on the heart but my daughter doesn't quite see it that way she doesn't quite see the mess that her mom was in you know she puts her on a pedestal because she's passed and put her on a pedestal before she passed but we're talking about her aunt her, her mom's youngest sister the only one that remains living and i said what's wrong with her because she was at the baby shower and she seemed off she seemed high to me okay and so we talked about her a little bit she said well she's going through the same problems mom did in pain and needing pills and stuff like that i said well she's she's high right and she's like oh i I don't think she abuses them so it's hard for a child to see the pattern repeating but yet i said to her this is your chance to rewrite the story and she said that's what i plan on doing dad so my only question is, she's rewriting the story, but she's not taking in the whole story. Right. So it's tough. It's tough. I've had a wonderful relationship with my daughter and my oldest son. He's just getting off the drugs of a year. So he's he's still on a kind of shallow area in his life. So we haven't talked about much depth. But my daughter, we talk more because she's got a daughter now. Things come up. And so we're able to talk about it. So I know when, as her daughter gets older, I can talk to her more about stuff that happened with her and her mom or me and her mom. And I have to say, I just enjoy what was my role. That was really important because, yeah. you know, if you'd asked me when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I would have said, she's a blah, blah, blah. And she's a blah, blah, blah. And I'm blah, blah, blah. And 
I didn't do much and I, you know, I'm a nice person. I don't deserve this crap, but no, there was stuff I could have done differently for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. I look back and I'm kind of like, oh man, it's and again, hindsight's 2020 and there's no reason to beat ourselves up for the past because there's nothing you could do, but make the future better. Right. So Scott, I heard your song driveway. You got to get into this, man. The line, the devil's coming to town, burn my dinner table to the ground. I mean, that just pulls at the heartstrings. That song has some great lyrics. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I wrote the song. I started writing the song 10 years ago when I was in my second marriage. And I saw a woman I noticed. And then she's with a guy I didn't recognize. I asked my wife at the time, well, who, who's that? And she said, oh, that's that's Lori. I said, I know that, but who's with her? She's like, oh, that's her boyfriend. I'm like, well, what about Stan or whatever his name was, the husband? She's like, oh, no, they they broke up. And so I started writing this song, not knowing that it was about my divorce. It was going to be about my divorce. So the first verse is about that and about how the neighborhood's growing thin. Because from my point of view, a boyfriend is thin compared to a father. Neighborhood should be full of fathers and mothers and children, and not these boyfriends. You know, later on, I became a boyfriend. So, right. Um, and then I remember she was really skeptical about the song. Little did I know she was having an affair. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, then we broke up. Oh, thank you. And then we broke up and I wrote the rest of the song about my youngest son and go going through go being so close to him, being with him every day to being with him in the apartment twice a week, even though I was just up the street from him, it just wasn't the same. And it just was devastating. And the the devil came to town, burned my dinner table to the ground. I think it's the best analogy I could have come up with of how I felt. It was just because the dinner table was symbolic of the family, of course, and it yep. was gone. It was just annihilated. And I and I was older than that one. I was in my late uh about to be early 50s, I guess, late 40s. And and I was like, I'm not having any more kids. And I would see these people at the grocery store, you know, picking out ice cream. And I imagine that they were 20 something. And I imagine them like going home, watching a movie and hanging out. And then one day they're like, hey, let's get married. And then one day they're like, hey, let's have kids. And I was like, I'm not going to have that anymore. I, ha I had this ideal of what it was to be a father in America. And, and I, that was just smashed. It wasn't going to happen to me. I was now a divorced dad who yep. saw his kid every now and then. And so that's what the song, the whole song is about that. And it was, I think I did a good job of getting the pain that I was feeling across. Yeah, you did. Especially to someone who's experienced that pain. I knew exactly where you were coming from. And it's just like, you're looking in, you're looking in a window at somebody else's life, but it was your life. And yeah. Now it's not yours anymore. And you really can't ever get it back. No. Yeah. It's not my life. And I think part of it too, I don't know if dad's experiencing this too, is part of it is the home, losing the home. And in my case, it was my home I bought by myself. Then she and I owned it together. But I was a father and a homeowner and a husband. Those three things. And suddenly I was just a part-time father. Just Scott. Yeah, just a part-time father. And the pain was immense. And I went through a suicidal time with that. And the song hits on that a little bit as well. Yeah, I think we all did. In fact, I have to apologize because I said, you're just Scott. But you know what? You're not. Because I wasn't just Chuck during this time either. I was, am I this monster? No, I'm not this monster. But, but am I this monster? I mean, I do yell, but is that abusive? Like, I mean, am I am I abuser? I, I don't know. You, you don't know who you are you in this. Don't. It's hard because because you. I think also males. We you know we got the job, we got the house, we got the public. That's who we are, but that's not really who we are. We think that's who we are, and then when that's taken away from us, then we're like, who are we? Well, who are we now? Mm -hmm. 
and and that's that is you know that's been an adventure of the last 10 years or so it's a very good song sir very good indeed thank you thank you scott thank you so much for being on the white daddy never cries podcast show uh, whatever the name of my show is <laughs> <laughs> thanks chuck thanks it's been wonderful i really appreciate it i look forward to hearing your music if you get up this way man you gotta let us know if you're touring in town where can people find you where can they find your music uh, they can find wherever they stream music. You can type in Scott Hall Driveway to find the song. And then my latest album is Scott Hall Aliens, Angels, and Monsters. And I also have a website, IamScottHall.com. Very cool. Scott, thank you very much. And I'll talk to you soon, brother. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Today, I opened the show talking about a direction that we all needed to achieve, or at least strive to achieve. Scott, like myself still hasn't come as far as we would have liked to on our healing journey, or even our journey of self-discovery. Why? Because it's a continual process. Continual improvement never ends. We always have to strive to make ourselves better. And never give up on yourself. If you keep your eye on the prize, that prize will always be obtainable. Some other good advice we got today, brothers and sisters? That's to follow your instincts. Over time... We've gotten to the point that we don't even feel our spidey senses tingling anymore until it's too late. We've forgotten our primal instincts. So keep in mind, if your hair is standing on the back of your neck, ignore everything else that might be standing up. Point of advice, if your little head is overriding your big head, go home and slam it in a dresser drawer. It'll be a lot less painful in the long run. Public service announcement. Go back, listen to the show's disclaimer, and don't slam your dick in a dresser drawer. This is a hard one, man. Addiction and marriage? Fuck. I don't even know where to go from here. So many people make it to the other side of addiction, and so many people don't. I can tell you one thing. There are no atheists in foxholes, and that's the best advice I can give you for right now. Why do you think Scott felt so sad? We live in the memories from his failed marriage after all these years. How long do you think we're going to carry these scars? Unfortunately, or fortunately, I feel we carry these scars for a lifetime. You gotta remember, just don't let our trauma define us. You gotta overcome your trauma. It can't become your life. Unless, of course, you're starting a podcast to help other guys, then, of course, let your trauma fly, baby. And it's okay to go through the grieving process. In fact, you should. It is a loss. You lost your marriage. All right? It's okay to have those feelings still pop up every now and then. Even if it's based on a happy memory. So leave it at that. Let that moment come and go. Good or bad. Happy or sad. Let the moment enter and leave your brain, and then be present in whatever is going on around you. Life is beautiful. Don't forget to live yours. And also don't forget, the person you fell in love with doesn't exist. Don't keep looking for him. It's time to move on. And that's okay. And the waste of time that comes from false allegations, we all know that can never be relived. This is our divorced, unfortunate reality. So you have to own it. Again, but don't let it define you. Or whether you've used that solitude away from family well, or you squandered it 
that's no longer an issue. What you do today and how you set yourself up for tomorrow is all that matters. Life's a clean slate as of right now. Make sure you make the best of it. And this is a tough call, I get it. But if the police are involved, then your situation is serious. If the cops are there looking for you, the shit hit the fan already. Protect yourself and follow Scott's advice. Shut your mouth. Call a lawyer. The courts, the fighting, that'll come and go. But most of all, I want you to remember this point. The school called Scott, even though he lived in another state, because he kept in contact with the school, because he kept involved as best he could with his kids and their extracurricular activities. It's easy for dads to take a back seat when it comes to school. Doctors, everything. In fact, it's almost natural for us. But when you're a divorced dad, you no longer have that luxury. You have to go outside your comfort zone and remain in your kids' lives. Think about it. Had Scott taken a back seat, he might never have known about how his kids were living until it was too late. Well done, brother. Well done indeed. And speaking of well done, I recently spoke to Scott, and he's recording a new single about women's empowerment. Why? Because everyone should have the same opportunities in life. It's really that simple. Make sure you check out Scott's work at IamScottHall.com. You'll find a link to his work in today's show notes if needed. And if there are any politicians out there who care to join the cause to help us figure out how to make this divorce process truly about protecting the children, actually, the first step, we're going to need to figure out a new process that doesn't keep destroying our children. We're waiting, politicians. We're waiting. All right, Joe, take us home, brother. We must get our voices out there. Send us your stories to Why Daddy Never Cries at Gmail or Why Daddy Never Cries on Facebook. Remember, this is a daily and sometimes hourly struggle. So follow us on Daddy Never Cries at Twitter and Why Daddy Never Cries on Instagram and let your voice be heard. Let's end the fatherless children's syndrome that's plaguing this world. You can't change what happened to you, brothers. So figure out how to make it work for you and your children. When life gave me lemons, I said to hell with a glass. I'm making an international lemonade franchise. So until next time, take a deep breath. You've got this, Daddy. Don't know where, where